0: Greetings, friends. I am Mark Huddle, professor of history at Georgia College and director of the college's Center for Georgia Studies. This is the latest in the center's ongoing radio collaboration with WRGC 88.3, Milledgeville's national public radio affiliate. Thank you all for tuning in. For this episode, we delve into a fascinating chapter in the history of American race relations in the late civil rights era the rise and fall of the Soul City community. Soul City was the vision of civil rights icon Floyd McKissick, who in 1969 announced a plan to build a new city in rural Warren County, North Carolina, open to all who would relocate there, but intended primarily as a haven for African Americans seeking political autonomy and a piece of the American dream. Soul City was an audacious experiment in what was then termed Black capitalism, an attempt to achieve equality through economic empowerment to demonstrate what could happen if Blacks were allowed to control the levers of political and economic power in their own communities. With funding from the Nixon administration and the assistance of urban planners at the University of North Carolina and Harvard, McKissick purchased 5,000 acres on a former slave plantation, upon which he built roads, houses, a health care center, and an industrial plant. The project's goal was to attract 50,000 residents to the new settlement by the year 2000. Tragically, Floyd McKissick's dream ended in failure. The project met with myriad institutional obstacles and attacks from across the political spectrum and in the news media. By 1980, after years of litigation, the federal government ended its support and the Soul City Project collapsed. Our guest for this conversation is Professor Thomas Healy of the Seton Hall University Law School. He is the author of an excellent new book, Soul City, Race, Equality, and the Lost Dream of an American Utopia, published this past February by Metropolitan Books' Henry Holton Company. It is the first book-length study of Soul City, and in his masterful narrative, Professor Healy captures the hope and idealism that fueled the evolution of the project as well as the frustrations, anger, and heartbreak as McKissick's dreams of a black utopia unraveled. It is an important and underreported chapter in the history of the civil rights movement. The book also shines a light on the forces of institutional racism and the obstacles that ultimately proved too difficult for McKissick and his supporters to overcome. Thomas Healy, thank you so much for speaking with us, and congratulations on the book.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: How did you... End up in Soul City. I confess I have been through Warren, North Carolina, any number of times over the years, but never really even thought to seek out Soul City. How did you decide to take on this project?
1: Well, you're not the only one who, who hasn't heard about Soul City. Many people, even people who study this period in American history, don't know about it, which is really a shame. And, and one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I grew up in North Carolina uh, and was actually born in 1969, the same year that Floyd McKissick launched Soul City, and I never had heard about it until I was in my early 20s and working as a newspaper reporter at the News and Observer in Raleigh. Floyd McKissick died in 1991, and when he did, an editor of mine was talking to me about McKissick's career as a civil rights leader and mentioned Soul City and described it as an all-black city that McKissick had attempted to build about an hour north of Raleigh Durham. Of course, I later came to learn that that description was inaccurate, that Soul City was never intended to be all black, but the idea of building this community from scratch to address the, the needs of African Americans and to try to achieve racial equality, it really stuck with me over the decades and in 2014 when the protests broke out in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, I thought back to Soul City and I thought back to what McKissick was trying to achieve and I thought about some of the parallels between Ferguson and Warren County where Soul City was being built. Both of these are places in which African Americans make up about two-thirds of the population, but in which whites control all of the levers of power. Um, And it struck me that the kind of self-determination and power that the residents in Ferguson were seeking uh, was exactly what Floyd McKissick hoped Soul City could bring to the black residents of Warren County in 1969.
0: You've mentioned Floyd McKissick, and he is the central figure uh, in in your study. Uh, I just referenced him as as an icon. I'd, who was he? For our listeners who might not know or remember Floyd McKissick. Tell us a little bit about his life and work and how he ended up in rural Warren County.
1: Floyd McKissick was a native of North Carolina. He was born in 1922 in Asheville. He studied at Morehouse and then received his law degree from what is now North Carolina Central uh, University And he became involved in the civil rights struggle at a very early age. He was one of the participants in the journey for reconciliation in 1947, which was a precursor to the Freedom Rides 14 years later. Throughout the 1950s, as a young lawyer in Durham, um, he represented African Americans who were seeking to integrate the schools and integrate a variety of public accommodations. He really broke onto the national scene in 1960 with the sit-ins in Greensboro. McKissick advised the students who initiated the sit-ins. He helped spread the sit-in movement across the state and across the country. And he became closely aligned with the Congress of Racial Equality, which was one of the big five civil rights groups during this time period. Ultimately, he became the national chairman of the Congress of Racial Equality, which was known as CORE, and then he became its uh, executive director from 1966 to 1968. And throughout this time period, you know, he was really one of the major civil rights leaders in the country. You know, he was almost as well known as Martin Luther King. He was, his name would appear in headlines in the New York Times without any sort of uh, descriptor. Uh, because everyone simply knew who McKissick was. And, you know, he believed like uh, like King and like other civil rights leaders, he believed in integration. But as the civil rights movement wore on and as it became clear that some of the important gains were not actually translating into economic equality, McKissick increasingly turned his focus to that issue, to the issue of economic equality, which he thought was um, indispensable for political equality. And so he really became one of the most outspoken advocates of black power, and then what came to be known as black capitalism, which was quite simply just the idea of putting wealth and capital in the hands of black people.
0: This shift that McKissick is so representative of towards economic issues and issues of economic equality as a pathway to political power it has some very specific historical context. Can you talk a little bit about the civil rights movement in the late 1960s when McKissick would have been the executive director of CORE and then leaving that organization? April 1968, of course, uh, we have the assassination of Dr. King and the mainstream civil rights organizations were in a period of transition, uh, or worse, upheaval. What is the historical context that draws McKissick towards the Soul City Project in 1969?
1: Yeah, it was really a moment of transition. You know, the the civil rights movement in the late 1950s and early to maybe mid-1960s was really focused on the issue of desegregation and dismantling the Jim Crow system. And there was a certain moral clarity to that goal. It was a goal that many white liberals were sympathetic to. Uh, the slogans were sort of hard to argue with. Uh, freedom now was was sort of the, the primary slogan and who could argue with freedom now. And the techniques and the tactics were nonviolence. They were about love and making connections and bonds uh, between the races. What happened in the mid to late 1960s is that many civil rights leaders became frustrated with the slow pace of change. You know, there had been lots of steps forward, the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965, but there was still this frustration that In terms of the practical aspects of people's lives, that things had not changed much for black people. And there was a focus, an increasing focus on the problems of the cities and the problems of the black ghettos and problems of unemployment and poverty and lack of adequate health care. So many civil rights leaders began to shift their focus to talk about these issues and to emphasize these issues. Um, And they began to think that what was really needed was the sort of acquiring of of additional power for black people or, or, or some power. And so the slogans changed from freedom now to black power. And this had the effect of putting off many white liberals who had previously been sympathetic to the civil rights struggle and then King's assassination sort of accelerated this process and and the sort of unraveling of this consensus that had existed within the civil rights movement in the earlier part of the 1960s. And so people like McKissick were were looking for the next direction and trying to figure out in the words of King himself, uh, where do we go from here? Uh, And McKissick believed very strongly that the direction to take had to be focusing on economic issues. And and he became convinced that the only way to achieve economic equality for African Americans um, was to put capital in the hands of black people. I mean, there were many civil rights leaders who were critical of capitalism and thought that capitalism was the problem and, and cited the uh, the historical connection between racism and slavery and capitalism. But McKissick was a very pragmatic leader, and his view was that, look, capitalism is the system that we have, and if we're going to achieve wealth, we have to do it through the established system. And so that's really what what led him to this focus on Black capitalism, or, you know, as he preferred to call it, Black entrepreneurialism, the idea of investing in Black businesses so that black people could acquire wealth the same
2: way that white people had acquired wealth. You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and Thomas Healy about the book Soul City, Race, Equality, and the Lost Dream of an American Utopia. Thomas Healy is a professor at the Seton Hall Law School. And Mark Huddle is the director of the Center for Georgia Studies at Georgia College. This conversation is the seventh collaboration between WRGC 88.3 FM and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American so city South. Walking, yeah. so yeah, city walking, y'all. Now this day started in Washington, D.C., and it
0: spread. I'm always interested in what I guess I'd call the, the messiness of black power politics. As a general phrase, it had a certain political utility, but one of the major criticisms of it at the time was that it was very difficult to define. And I think in your answer, you know, on the one hand, we had very, you know, militant Organizations, for instance, like the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense that embraced a more militant, more aggressive rhetoric at various times, argued for kind of revolutionary transformation of American society and allowed for a very specific narrative uh, in the media, especially about what black power was supposed to be. But McKissick and other people like him, who embraced capitalism or actually, I think, kind of delineating a more conservative thread, if that's the right word uh, in in black power politics. I mean, a lot of of his rhetoric when he was the executive director of core seems to have been really very militant. And yet ultimately, he embraces this this more conservative path, a more traditionally, American path rooted in market transformation and the power of of economics to uplift. And those ideas go back to the nineteenth century. I mean that's Booker T. Washington's ideology.
1: Absolutely. And I think you're you're right to talk about this period and, and black power politics as being very messy. I think it was very messy and and I think there was a real struggle over the direction of the civil rights movement or You know, we might describe it more broadly as the black freedom struggle. And there were certainly more revolutionary voices. And McKissick occupies a sort of weird position, I think, within the group of black power leaders because you're right that, you know, his rhetoric has always been very militant and combative. He was one of the two leaders most associated with the term Black Power, he and Stokely Carmichael, when McKissick's militants often scared away more moderate members of the civil rights movement. Uh, You know, King sometimes, I think, was a a little bit turned off by McKissick's rhetoric, and and lots of white activists in the civil rights movement were turned off by his rhetoric. Um, And yet, I, I think you're also right to note that by embracing capitalism as the means to uplift, you know, McKissick takes a bit of a rightward turn. You know, I don't think he, it would ever be fair to call him conservative. You know, I think that his view of black capitalism was was probably different than the kind of traditional view of capitalism. I mean, I think he still believed in redistribution of wealth. Um, But I think he was just a, a realist and a pragmatist. And he I think he just thought that there was no way that the capitalist system was going to be overthrown in the United States. And so as long as that was going to be the system for acquiring wealth for the foreseeable future, that it just made sense to give African Americans a piece of that action he described black capitalism as I said earlier he said he didn't even really like that term he liked the term black entrepreneurialism he even sometimes used the term black socialism uh, to describe what he had in mind and he partnered with an economist in thinking about Soul City who came up with this idea of radical capitalism uh, in which the workers at the factories would form trusts that would actually have an ownership stake in the factories and so you know, I think McKissick, McKissick had a lot of ideas going on here. I think he was he was trying to put together a lot of different thoughts. And it is true, I think, when you look back, that in some ways he looks more conservative than some of the black power advocates who were basically calling for, you know, a kind of overthrow of the entire system. On the other hand, you know, if you dropped him down today into American politics, I think he would look pretty radical but I think this is just illustrates kind of how messy things were at the time and sort of how much the sands were shifting um, and how many different ideas there were about how to move forward.
0: There seems to me a, a kind of almost irreconcilable tension here when we link black power and black capitalism in the sense that you talk about the March Against Fear in your book, 1966, the the James Meredith effort to march across Mississippi, and the emergence then of people like Stokely Carmichael and Willie Ricks, who begin to throw around this slogan of black power. And it's very much in that early incarnation, a kind of oppositional politics. Yet, when we talk about Soul City, and when we talk about McKissick after 1969, black capitalism comes to be embraced by the federal government. Rather than being a kind of oppositional thing, it kind of resituates African American politics in the context of what was then, I guess, contemporary American statism. Let's talk about that top down approach. Richard Nixon plays a, a pretty significant role role in this part of the story. How does he come to a position on black capitalism, even a- appropriates the, the phrase black power, I think, at one point uh, in 1968? In he manages to embrace these ideas in a way and then becomes one of the chief funding sources for Soul City. How does Nixon's place in the story, how does that work?
1: Well, Nixon is trying to have it both ways. Right. He's trying he's trying to play both sides here because, you know, in 1968, he's running a law and order campaign based on the Southern strategy in which he's implicitly and sometimes explicitly appealing to white racism in order to win the South. At the same time. Nixon is not willing to give up on the black vote entirely. And, and you know, if you think about Nixon's history, that's somewhat understandable. Nixon actually, in the 1950s, when he was vice president under Eisenhower, he was described as the civil rights workhorse of the GOP. He was made an honorary member of the NAACP for his work on behalf of civil rights initiatives. Uh, Martin Luther King had written very sort of affectionate and grateful letters to Nixon. And in 1960, when Nixon ran against Kennedy, for most of that race, Nixon was viewed as more progressive on issues of race. It was only in the last couple of weeks when Kennedy and his brother Robert intervened to to help King, who was imprisoned, that more African-Americans turned toward Kennedy. And, And yet even still, Nixon won, I think it was about 30 percent of the black vote in 1960, which no Republican candidate has come close to winning since. So Nixon, you know, I I think that he he thought he still had the chance to appeal to a certain segment of the black population. He had made his appeal to whites uh, by calling them the silent majority. And he thought that there was a silent black majority that believed in more traditional values and embraced capitalism. Um, And so when he heard people like Floyd McKissick embracing black entrepreneurialism and black capitalism, I think Nixon thought that was his in, that that was the way that he could both run on the Southern strategy and still capture a sizable percentage of the black vote. And, and so that's exactly what he tried to do. Uh, you know, he gave a speech in May of 1968, in which he argued that the values that people like McKissick were espousing, that they had much more in common with the values of the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. There was even a sort of private meeting between Nixon and McKissick and McKissick's deputy, Roy Innes, in the spring of 1968 to talk about whether Nixon could get their support and what Nixon could do for them. Now, McKissick did not endorse Nixon in 1968. He didn't endorse either of the major party candidates. uh, And he was very critical of Nixon once Nixon was elected because he thought that Nixon had not lived up to his promises about black capitalism. But ultimately when McKissick needed federal funding for Seoul City, uh, it was the Nixon administration that that he had to reach out to for that help. And there were a number of black administration officials uh, that, that McKissick worked with to secure that funding. And so ultimately, by 1972, Nixon and McKissick are allies because Nixon believes that McKissick can help bring him votes and McKissick believes that Nixon can help secure support
0: for Soul City. One of the th- things about Nixon and black power, Nixon and black capitalism that oh, has always intrigued me in a lot of the early literature about Nixon and civil rights, the emphasis is always on Nixon's cynicism, that this was a purely political maneuver in which on the one hand, you are making a nod towards the African-American community, but you're doing it in a way that does not alienate whites. And I mean, even even Southern whites, but that ultimately in practice, it is essentially a paper tiger. And yet what, what I've discovered in some of my own work is that Even though Nixon ran against the Great Society and singled out the Office of Economic Opportunity for getting the axe, there was still significant amounts of money in the pipeline that the Republicans were willing to use, even if it was in political terms, creating an Office of Minority Business, empowering the Department of Housing and Urban Development. It seems to me that McKissick is doing something very, very simple as he begins to align himself, not based on just political rhetoric, but on a certain reality that there was real money to be had.
2: There
1: was real money to be had and white developers were getting it. <laughs> so there was I think in McKissick's view, there was no reason that, that a black developer shouldn't have access to that money as well. You talk about the the, the cynicism of Richard Nixon and you know, I, I think you can't underestimate Nixon's cynicism. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, this was a different Republican Party than exists today. You know, Nixon, if you dropped him down into contemporary politics, uh, you know, he would almost maybe be a kind of Joe Manchin Democrat. Uh, You know, I don't think that he would be on the sort of Tea Party side of the Republican Party. You know, he was much more committed to the idea that government could actually do things and could solve problems. And this sort of obsession that the Republican Party has had over the past few decades, I think a kind of false obsession with austerity and, and, and balancing the budget, you know, that, that wasn't really a part of the, the Republican Party at this moment in history. So, uh, yeah, I think there was definitely some cynicism. And I think that you know, Nixon was willing to do just enough to support black capitalism, but probably no more than that. But the just enough that he was willing to do meant that there was real money available from the federal government. And I think McKissick recognized that. And I think that he realized that he'd be stupid to intentionally alienate the administration that could make that funding available to him.
0: Do you think there was a quid pro quo? I mean, because McKissick, becomes a Republican, stumps for Nixon in 72, is a major advisor to some degree on race issues for the committee to reelect the president. And around the same time, HUD releases the money for the Soul City project, uh, or at least signs off on it. You know, do you think there was a quid pro quo there? Support me and I will make sure that you get your loans.
1: I never found any definitive evidence that there was an explicit quid pro quo. I never found a smoking gun. And in fact, you know, there's a lot of evidence to support the conclusion that HUD was going to give McKissick the money regardless. Uh, He had been negotiating with HUD for almost three years by this point. He had submitted an application for uh, funding for Seoul City under the New Communities Act of 1968, and HUD had asked him for additional information at a number of different points, and, and he and his team had worked hard to provide that additional information. George Romney, who was the secretary of HUD, wrote McKissick in October of 1971 to say that they were almost there. There were just a couple of other things McKissick needed to do in order to get this loan guarantee for Soul City. And in December of 1971, the New Communities Board that was overseeing the building of new towns across the country, it voted to award McKissick the money as soon as he completed the final conditions that they had imposed. And it wasn't until a couple of months later that McKissick um, reached out to officials in the Nixon administration to offer his support for Nixon. uh, And it wasn't until early summer of 1972 that he officially switched parties and endorsed Nixon. So, you know, the way I see it is that McKissick may very well have thought that switching parties and supporting Nixon would accelerate the process. I think it was the loan guarantee was likely to be approved regardless. And I think that McKissick viewed switching parties and supporting Nixon as a kind of insurance policy. Even if he was going to get this loan guarantee, that he was still going to need the support of the Nixon administration as he set out to build the city, because the loan guarantee wasn't the only thing that he needed. He needed grants from a variety of federal agencies, and and he was going to need to work with HUD over the course of, of building Soul City. And so, The way I describe it in the book is that I think rather than viewing this as a quid pro quo, I think McKissick viewed it as an insurance policy, something that would ensure that HUD wouldn't bail on him uh, once the loan guarantee was issued.
0: Well, I think that gives us a nice segue into the Soul City project itself.
2: You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and Thomas Healy about the book, Soul City, Race, Equality, and the Lost Dream of an American Utopia. Thomas Healy is a professor at the Seton Hall Law School, and Mark Huddle is the director of the Center for Georgia Studies at Georgia College.
0: Uh-huh. I wonder, is it because I'm black? Oh. I think one of the things that, that's so fascinating about this particular bit of public policy making is that McKissick chose rural Warren County, a place that, relatively speaking, was isolated. The land that he purchases is uh, an old uh, tobacco plantation. This was quite literally starting the process of community building from scratch. What is it that drew him to this rural area as opposed, say, being closer to one of the major metropolitan areas of the region? Part of it was practical.
1: You know, he needed a lot of land to build a city that could accommodate fifty thousand people. And the closer you got to a metropolitan area like, say, Raleigh Durham, the more expensive that land was gonna be. And so I think part of it was just was just that. And and McKissick was not starting off with a lot of money at the beginning. He had to take out a loan from Chase, Manhattan, in order to finance the purchase of the land and if you were going to try to buy that kind of land close to Raleigh-Durham, it was going to, it was going to cost a lot more. So I think that was part of it. Um, I think also there was this sense that if you built a city from scratch that was not a part of any existing community, um, that you would really have complete control over the project and that you could create the culture of that community from scratch. And I think there was something really appealing to McKissick about that. You know, the, the whole goal of Soul City was Black self-determination, right? A place that Black people could build and where Black people would likely be majority of the population and likely control the levers of power and, and, and control, you know, a large share of the capital. And if you think about that goal... It would be much harder to achieve that goal if you're essentially a bedroom community of, say, Raleigh, uh, because then you're you're going to have to work with Raleigh. You're going to have to make lots of compromises, and really, you might just end up building some neighborhoods that people live in, but you know they work in and do their recreation and and they're all their shopping, you know, in Raleigh. And so I think you know McKissick thought, look, if, if we want an entire community that we can think of as ours, where we are running the show. We need to be on our own. And this actually was much more consistent with the goal of the New Communities Act, which Congress passed in 1968, and which provided the funding for Soul City. Soul City was not the only new town that was being funded by Congress at the time. Ultimately, 13 new towns across the country were given federal money. And the whole goal behind the New Communities Act was to build new growth centers, not just to build bedroom communities or satellite communities, uh, but to go to parts of the country where you didn't really have much economic growth to rural areas and actually create a new growth center, both to provide opportunity for the people who lived in those rural areas and to relieve the congestion of the existing cities, as it turned out. Soul City was the only one of those 13 towns funded under this act that actually was attempting to meet that goal and that actually was being built as a standalone community. All of the other communities were essentially bedroom communities. And, you know, so although it sounds crazy to us now you know, at the time, it wasn't viewed as crazy to try to build a community from scratch. It was consistent with the goal of the legislation, and it was really consistent with McKissick's goal of achieving black self-determination.
0: But it also seems to maybe have opened him up a little bit more to these nagging accusations of separatism that many of his critics, again, I think across the political spectrum, we're labeling Soul City as this sort of separatist experiment that was in some way, shape, or form running counter to the goals of a broader civil rights movement and in some instances perhaps in violation of Title VII, which might have compromised the, the money that he was getting from the federal government?
1: Yeah, I do think you're right that it made it easier for critics to claim that this was a separatist community. The fact that he was attempting to build this city in the middle of nowhere in a a county that was two-thirds black. I do think that it opened him up to that criticism. I still think the criticism was unfair because he made clear from the beginning that this would be a multiracial community. His right-hand man on the project and closest friend at the time was a man named Gordon Carey, who was a white civil rights activist, who was married to a white woman and whose children were white. You know, ultimately about a quarter of the staff at Soul City was white. And the white government officials in Warren County and the adjacent counties and the white business leaders ultimately supported Soul City. They recognized that Soul City would be a boon to the area. The area was really struggling at the time. And so, you know, with with all of that cooperation with local white leaders and business people and with the staff being a quarter white and with HUD being involved in the project and the HUD obviously is not going to support a project that is violating federal law. You know, I think the claims of, of separatism were really misleading and the people who made those claims, you know, I think some of the people made those claims because they didn't want Soul City to succeed and and they thought this was a, a good way to generate opposition. And I think other people just were obtuse when it came to to Soul City and they just weren't listening. They just didn't pay attention. You know, a good example of this would be Claude Sitton, who was the editor of the News and Observer in Raleigh, uh, who had been a legendary civil rights reporter for The New York Times viewed as incredibly sympathetic to the movement who opposed Soul City from the beginning because he viewed it as a step away from integration. He said that this was a sign of defeatism and withdrawal. And despite McKissick's protestations, despite the fact that McKissick and this white man, Gordon Carey, went to Claude Sitton's office to talk to him about Soul City, despite the fact the staff was a quarter white, Claude Sitton could just never get it out of his head that this was going to be a separatist community. He said years later, when interviewed for an oral history project um, and asked about Soul City, he said, "Well, you know, I was an integrationist. I just couldn't support a project like that. I don't know why he couldn't. He couldn't understand that 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 wasn't true. That it wasn't going to be separatist. But I think you're right that the location." did make it easier for people like Sitton to believe that McKissick was like Marcus Garvey and was just going to go off somewhere and build a kind of exclusively black community.
0: Well, you mentioned Claude Sitton and the Raleigh News and Observer. There is a kind of politics of narrative, if that makes sense, that seems to wind its way through this story and the Raleigh News and Observer seems to have really played a major role in the ways that people around the country were perceiving what McKissick was trying to do. How would you assess the ways in which the the News and Observer was was shaping this story, beyond Claude Sitton?
1: Well, I think they made some serious mistakes. This was a newspaper that I later worked for, and I have respect for the people who worked at the News and Observer and and I personally knew the reporter who wrote many of the articles that the News and Observer published that were critical of Soul City and that accused Soul City of fraud and mismanagement. But I think that they seriously messed up on the Soul City story. And and it started really, I think, with Claude Sitton and, and his opposition. Claude Sitten was the executive editor of the News and Observer at the time. He was in charge of both the editorial page and the news pages. There was no firewall between those two departments like there is in most newspapers today. And he made his opposition to Soul City known from the beginning. Just a couple of weeks after McKissick announced plans for Soul City, Claude Sitton wrote a column in which he, as I said, described this as a sign of defeatism and withdrawal and as a, as a real sort of serious mistake. The News and Observer, a few years later, launched an investigation into Soul City, and one of its reporters spent about three months investigating Soul City, and, and they ended up publishing a series of articles that accused Soul City of all sorts of things, conflicts of interest and nepotism and mismanagement, and charged that... This was a quid pro quo for McKissick's political support of Nixon. And these articles were just full of innuendo and hints and suggestions that McKissick was involved in criminal activity and was likely going to jail. And all of this led to a congressional audit um, that was actually called for by Jesse Helms, who was the junior senator from North Carolina at the time. And the congressional audit ultimately cleared Soul City of most of those allegations. And yet the NNO continued to criticize Soul City and continued to perpetuate this idea that, you know, McKissick was wasting taxpayer dollars and, and likely getting rich in the process. The editorial page continued to uh, hammer away at Soul City and, and run cartoons showing federal officials throwing money out of a window simply because McKissick called and asked And never once did the NNO provide the larger context. Never once did it talk about the reason that Congress had passed the New Communities Act and the urban crisis that projects like Soul City were a response to, nor did it talk about all of the things that Soul City was bringing to this desperately poor area. You know, it was entirely a one-sided hit job, in my opinion. Um, And it really did shape the narrative about Soul City. This was a time in which a newspaper like the News and Observer, which was the most powerful paper in the state, um, you know that was the source of information. There were no other sources. There were no social media platforms where people were getting their news. You got your news from the from the News and Observer, and all of the papers around the country picked up on that story and, and ran without verification the NNO's claims, um, and this became – governing narrative of Soul City and it came at a particularly crucial moment in the project's development and it ended up casting a cloud over the project that McKissick was
2: never really able to overcome. You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and Thomas Healy about the book Soul City, Race, Equality, and the Lost Dream of an American Utopia. Thomas Healy is a professor at the Seton Hall Law School, and Mark Huddle is the director of the Center for Georgia Studies at Georgia College. This conversation is the seventh collaboration between WRGC 88.3 FM and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American South.
0: So many of those stories seem to parrot press releases that were coming out of Jesse Helms's office in in Washington, D.C. What role did Helms play in the demise of Soul City?
1: You know, I would say Jesse Helms, as much as anyone, was responsible for thwarting Soul City. Helms was elected to the Senate for the first time in 1972. And and remember, this is the same year that McKissick switches parties, becomes a Republican, and endorses Richard Nixon. And so when Helms is elected as a Republican from North Carolina, McKissick reaches out to him. Now, there was no love lost between these two. Jesse Helms had been spouting racist propaganda for more than a decade on a Raleigh television station and you know these two were not natural allies but McKissick being a pragmatist reached out to Helms and said in essence I know we have a lot of differences but I think there are things that we can work together on for the good of the state and I'd like to talk to you about Seoul City and Helms responded in a letter a couple of weeks later and essentially said I'm not interested and at the earliest opportunity, I'm going to launch a federal investigation into Seoul City and into how you are spending federal and state funds. And the news observers articles, which appeared a few years later, gave Helms that opening. And Helms was the one who called for the congressional audit. Helms continued to hammer away at Soul City over the next few years. He continually called it a boondoggle and the biggest waste of taxpayer dollars in history. And ultimately, I think, the political pressure that he was applying uh, to HUD, he was constantly pressuring the the secretary of HUD to review the status of Soul City. And he was giving interviews to the press and, and making speeches on the floor of the Senate. And ultimately, I think it was the political pressure that he brought to bear that led the federal government to withdrawing its support from Soul City. But, you know, it was also the, the combination of Helms and the News and Observer because they were on opposite ends of the political spectrum. The News and Observer was a very liberal newspaper and Jesse Helms and the News and Observer were, were not friends, um, but McKissick was taking it from both sides. And there was a sense in which the News and Observer and Helms were working together. The reporter on the project would reach out to Helms' office when he was having difficulty getting documents from HUD, and then Helms would reach out to HUD and pressure HUD to release documents. And Claude Sitton knew how bad it looked that the News and Observer and Jesse Helms were on the same side opposed to Soul City. He tried at, at various moments to sort of distance the NNO from Helms, but the fact of the matter is that Helms and the News and Observer were on the same side that this was a joint effort to bring down Soul City, and, and I think they both bear responsibility for what happened.
0: Well, we are coming towards the end of our time, Professor Healy, but I would, I, what I'll do is I, I'll combine two questions to allow us to draw some conclusions here. We've spent a lot of time at the site of the community. What does Soul City look like today? And after, you know, the years that you have worked on this project, thought about Soul City, um, looked at the world that we currently live in, what lessons do you take away from your experiences writing the book and and from the Soul City saga specifically?
1: I have been to Soul City a number of times. You know, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, McKissick did end up building a number of buildings, uh, put in a lot of infrastructure. So, you know, they, they cleared the land, they put in roads, they built a water treatment plant and, and a regional water system. Uh, They built a healthcare clinic. They built a factory. Uh, They built the first neighborhood of about 70 homes, a pool and rec center, uh, a lake, volunteer fire department, a church, So when you go to Soul City today, you see all of that. You see what McKissick built, but most of it is abandoned or shuttered. There are still people who live in Soul City. There's about 70 homes and a couple of apartment buildings, primarily for senior citizens. So there are still people who live there, and the pool and rec center is still operational. But many of the buildings in Soul City have been abandoned and are falling down. The healthcare clinic. There's a, a retirement center. There's a, a strip mall that, that is boarded up and basically falling down. There is a neighborhood that was laid out with roads and lots but never developed, and the woods are sort of closing in on the roads there. When you visit Soul City today, it has the feeling of a ghost town. And I think, you know, really the most kind of tragic symbolism is that this factory that McKissick built. To help attract industry to the area, um, it has since been converted into a prison factory where workers at a nearby prison make janitorial products. And so it's not a happy scene. And I think that there's a lot of sadness there. There are some initial residents of Soul City who still live there. And although they're proud of their involvement in the project, I think they're all heartbroken to see what this dream has become as far as what we can learn from Soul City and, and what what the lessons are, I think that there are a couple of, of lessons. One, you know, I think that going back and researching this story and thinking about what McKissick was trying to achieve in 1969 just helps to highlight how little progress we've really made in terms of, of economic equality. I mean, when McKissick, Set out to build Seoul City, black families had one tenth the wealth of white families in the United States, and the, the black unemployment rate was double that of the white unemployment rate. Uh, and when I was writing my book, those numbers were essentially unchanged. Black families still have one tenth the wealth of white families, and at least a year ago, I don't know what the numbers are now, but the black unemployment rate was roughly double the white unemployment rate, um, and that really just illustrates that that what McKissick was trying to do, trying to put wealth and opportunity into the hands of black people, um, is still a challenge that we face today. And you know that as much as we've made progress in other respects, we have not made uh, progress there, and I think that's what the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, were all about in 2014. You know, that lack of autonomy, that lack of economic control and self-determination. The other big lesson that I draw from the book really has to do with the opposition that McKissick faced. You know, as I said, he faced opposition from two different places one from the Jesse Helms of the world. Uh, and, and my view is that there's only so much you can do to change the minds of people like Jesse Helms. Hopefully, over time, there will be fewer people who think like that. But for people who do think like that, I think there's only so much you can do to change their minds. But what I think was a real lost opportunity here was with people like Claude Sitton, people who were at least, you know, outwardly sympathetic to the goals that McKissick had and to the goals of the civil rights movement and to the goals of racial equality, and yet who were unwilling to listen to what McKissick was saying about what Black people needed. Uh, You know, Claude Sitton thought he knew best. He could only envision integration in one form. And, and that, that was where African Americans assimilated into white culture. And he just couldn't envision integration where black people were in control and where a majority of the population was black and and where, where white people would be a minority. But there's no reason that Integration can't work in that direction as well, and so I think the lesson here is is really a lesson for, for for white people who are sympathetic to these goals, to the goal of racial equality. You know, it's the importance of having some humility about our own wisdom, and listening, and allowing people of color, generally, and black people specifically, in this context, to really take the lead in figuring out what's needed in order to achieve racial equality. So that's the lesson that I take away from the story. Um, There's there's lots of sort of, you know, I think practical, political, and and policy kinds of lessons that we can take away, But, but to my mind, that's the sort of big overarching lesson of the Soul City story.
0: Excellent. Thomas Healy, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks so much, Mark. Professor Healy's book is called Soul City, Race, Equality, and the Lost Dream of an American Utopia. For so long, the story of Soul City has been a footnote in the broader histories of the civil rights era, often dismissed as the quixotic dream of Floyd McKissick and a glaring example of federal overreach at a time when Americans had more faith that their government could deploy resources to cure some of our national maladies. A closer look, however, shows us how messy and conflicted American politics were in the late 1960s and early 70s, when the momentum of the African-American freedom movement sputtered, American cities burned, and the nation struggled with a brutal, senseless war in Southeast Asia. Messy is the term that Thomas Healy and I used to describe it. Soul City was a product of Black Power politics that was rising across the country. McKissick himself deployed Black Power rhetoric He was representative of the growing militancy of the freedom struggle as he warned Americans that the failure to address the profound structural inequalities in our national life could potentially lead to more violence. And yet for all that rhetoric, McKissick's Soul City was in practice demonstrably more conservative. It was a solution rooted not in revolutionary upheaval but in a belief in the transformative power of American capitalism, the construction of a new city in which blacks would have political power and economic control. To achieve his goal, Floyd McKissick made common cause with the institutions that historically had too often provided the obstacles to black equality and success. He relied on the largesse of the federal government to make his dream a reality. He even joined the Republican Party. And if elements of the Soul City story seem conservative, that's the right word for it, how do we explain the attacks on the project that emanated from across the American political spectrum? Whether we are talking about the machinations of the racist North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms, or the editorial assaults of Claude Sitton and his liberal Raleigh News and Observer, Soul City was beset by enemies on all sides. And here we bear witness to the power and politics of narrative. The continuous drumbeat of criticism, the charges of corruption and malfeasance were catastrophic, halting the project at critical moments and in the end leading to its demise. Years of audits and criminal investigations proved the charges to be false, but in the end it didn't matter The stories we tell have the power to shape political reality, and may the truth be damned. And isn't that one of the lessons for our own time? Viewed through the prism of the present, the Soul City story seems like a fantasy. It's hard to remember a time when Americans had such a level of trust in their institutions. Or that government would use its considerable resources to actively intervene as a remedy for social problems. Our own time is marked by a deepening cynicism. For too long we've been told that government is the problem. And now is it any great surprise that those we elect to public office lack the capacity to govern. Worse, the structural impediments to freedom and equality are all around us. witness them daily we see the damage that they bring but the response of elected officials and many in the media is simply to deny their existence we're told to ignore the evidence we're told to ignore the reality that too many americans experience and even the subjects that we teach in the classroom are under assault evidence is irrelevant experience is irrelevant repeat the lies over and over and over again until they become reality In the process, our political discourse is degraded to the greater detriment of our national well-being. The collective will to solve the problems around us is crippled. Soul City was a dream, a quintessentially American dream. In the end, it ended in failure. The structures of power in politics, economics, and the media culture choked the life out of it. But that begs the question, where are our dreamers? At some level, our current political moment is a profound failure of imagination. So I'll leave you with a question. If we can't even imagine a better world, how can we expect to solve our problems and achieve the American dream of a more equitable and just society? Thomas Healy's book is Soul City, Race, Equality, and the Lost Dream of an American Utopia, published by Metropolitan Books, Henry Holton Company. My name is Mark Huddle. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.